Welcome back to Serious Coin, the podcast where we have rich conversations about wealth. I'm your host, Kelly Willis Green. If you've listened before, you know the goal of this podcast is to inspire money conversations that help wealth holders be more intentional about how we spend our money, invest it, and give it away. And my guest today has a fascinating and personal perspective on all three. He's Jim Hayhurst, award-winning CEO, community leader, investor, board member, and advisor to impactful companies and nonprofits throughout Canada. Jim's backstory is that he was born into a highly entrepreneurial family, and it seems to me that that DNA was embedded into everything he's done since. Over the course of his 30-year career, Jim's helped build five companies with operations on four continents. He's raised millions in both venture and charitable funding. And in 1992, he and his late father, Jim Hayhurst, co-founded their own charity, Trails Youth Initiatives. And it's through Trails that I got to know Jim. He and I both serve on the Board of Governors, and we've been having these monthly chats about philanthropy for the past couple of years, when finally I said to him, you know, we should take this on the air. Would you be willing to share these conversations with my podcast listeners? And thankfully, he was game, because Jim's experience working with both venture investors and top donors has led him to a new approach to philanthropy. And it's one that I find very interesting, and it's the subject of our conversation today. It embraces innovation and risk, and it looks more like venture philanthropy or philanthropeneurism, as it's sometimes called, and less like traditional charity and check writing. In this episode, Jim brings great insights for entrepreneurs who've had a liquidity event, for donors, both emerging and experienced, and for leaders of nonprofits. There's something for everybody in this episode. We started our conversation talking about Jim's entrepreneurial roots, what it was like growing up in the Hayhurst family, and the first time he became aware of his family's affluence. Have a listen. So growing up in the Hayhurst family was amazing and a lot. We came from a family that on on my dad's side was the advertising business. My grandfather started an agency in 1928. And my dad ended up running that company after after he did. On my mom's side were family camps, the Taylor Staten camps in Algonquin Park. I always think about those two businesses to grow up in. You know, on the one side, it's storytelling for the masses, you know, making commercials and, you know, being a brand-oriented family and advertising. And on my mom's side, it was storytelling, but it was, you know, campfires and really people-focused businesses. And I always thought, you know, later in life that a lot of what I did professionally and who I was personally was really informed by that duality. We we were not wealthy uh, in the early stages of, of my life. You know, we, my parents, we lived in Toronto, came from a, you know, a successful family, but it wasn't ostentatious wealth. We were a working family. When we were you know, quite young when I was in grade one, I guess, we moved out of Toronto. My parents bought a, a century-old farmhouse surrounded by cow patties and, and actual cows in a part of the country community of north of Toronto that wasn't the fancy one. So we were in a little town called Bradford. And so I grew up, you know, on a farm. Uh, obviously, my dad wasn't working the farm, but I grew up with farmer friends, uh, riding a dirt bike in the fields, um, swimming in a pond, going to a public school. Um, and all the time my dad was traveling to the city an hour each way, 
uh, to go to work at the agency. And so it was a really idyllic childhood. What would you say then were, were some of the values that you grew up with, spoken or unspoken in your family? Mm. Yeah, some of the values that, that we grew up with certainly were around community and sort of the, the equality within that community. Both my mom and my dad, they had friends from the city who were from the business scene or the social scene in Toronto. But like, honestly, our Christmas parties were this crazy mix of neighbors from the farm, uh, farming families, um, and and these folks from Toronto. So that sort of equality amongst friends was was really huge for us. So did that feel natural or was it ever confusing to you in terms of the differences in lifestyle and wealth? Yeah, no, it's it's funny because I think as kids, we don't really understand things, right, that are patently apparent to adults. Mm. So you, I'll give you an example. Hayhurst Advertising, our family agency, um, was a, a good-sized agency. It was one of the, the bigger ones in Canada, but we always seemed to get the, um, the second-tier uh, accounts, as far as I was concerned, especially the car accounts. So we never had um, the cars that everybody else had. We had Saab. That was that was our accounts in the in the seventies and eighties. And Saabs weren't cool back then. But I, re- I specifically remember we had the British Leyland account. So British Leyland was the parent company that owned Jaguar and Land Rover. And my dad drove a Jaguar in the seventies and early eighties. Now, I thought the Jaguar was the ugliest car. It was an embarrassment. Uh, you know, it wasn't cool at all. You know, I had friends who had, you know, the parents had like wicked cool pickup trucks and they were like a dual cab. And maybe it was a, you know, uh, but the, the Jaguar was like, I didn't know it was a fancy car. And so I was kind of embarrassed by it. Don't drive me to school in the Jaguar. Exactly. Exactly. But at the same time, there was someone who was older than us in the sort of neighborhood, the son of a friend of, of our families, who knew what a Jaguar was. And so when he had his prom, he asked my dad to like be his limo driver and take him to the prom in a Jaguar because he knew what that was. So I guess that's all to say that when you're a kid, you don't really have those markers. I, certainly that was the case back then. These days, you know, conspicuous consumption and luxury and all that stuff is very much embedded in the the fabric. I didn't know that we had more money than the people next to us. And it wasn't until we went to boarding school. And I think at that point, I realized, oh, you know, we probably have more money than I thought, because I now had relevant comparative markers to it, right? Right. But the other big change for us was my dad sold the agencies uh, in the mid 80s. And, and so that exit was a significant change for our family, wealth wise. And what do you remember about that? Yeah. And so I've, I've really tried to dig into this. Um, the sort of pithy answer that I give is that, uh, and this isn't true, but it's but it's probably true as a feeling that on the eve of my 18th birthday, my father sold the three generation company just before the fourth generation got his hands on it. Right. <laughs> um, but I do remember uh, that, you know, we. My parents invested in experiences, but more than anything, they invested in places that made everybody feel comfortable. And so probably the greatest gift or display of wealth that we had, really, the farm had by that point turned into quite a spectacular place. There was a pool and there were many rooms that people could stay in, but it still didn't have a fancy name. We called it the funny farm. It was very homey, but it was quite um, spectacular in its own way. People loved coming there. Uh, we had a we had a, a place in Naples, Florida, which again it was really the place that everybody went to. Our friends would go there when we weren't there. We had a ski chalet, 
And, but again, it was really more about, it wasn't the fanciest place, but it was the place where everybody was welcome. And we had a cottage in Algonquin Park, which was very modest, you know, barely on grid. We didn't have big boats, but it was the place that everybody loved going. And so we had these places, but they were more about the feeling that was created there than everything else that, you know, you sometimes think about with with wealth. Um, And so I think that that was something that really resonated for me. I wish I knew your dad because I've heard so many stories about him and I I gather he was sort of bigger than life and you are his namesake, you are a junior. And sometimes when that's the case, there's one of two things that can happen when you're the child of very successful parent. There's the shadow effect that you hear about where the child just feels that, well, I'll never measure up to what mom or dad did, so why even bother trying? And it's very demotivating. The other side of it is, and to use cycling analogy, you know, they draft off of the parent and it can create a sense of, arrogance or entitlement. And and in you, neither is the case. And I just wonder, like, what are your thoughts on this? Is that good parenting or your own DNA wiring? Or how is it that you've been able to use, I think, the best of the legacy that you provided and move forward in life? Yeah, this is, it's something I think about a lot. In my moments of really reflecting on who I am, it's really clear to me that the gift of having him as a dad and as a mentor and as a business partner, was also balanced by, or in some ways offset by what you talked about in terms of that pressure. Um, it was it was tough to be his son, I'll be honest. And um, I don't think I internalized that until towards the end of his life. And just after he passed too, in talking to others. And, it, you know, I think this happens when parents pass or when anyone passes, there's a bit more honest discussion about um, about who they were. And, and let's be really clear, you know, my dad's legacy is is impeccable. Mm. Um, and he is adored to this day. And I never get tired of talking about my father. Um, and at the same time, I understand that he was tough on me in ways that probably prevented me from achieving um, maybe the measure of classic success that he did. But I'll be I'll be damned if I don't thank him every day for teaching me the things that actually were really important and uh, and that my mom was there to balance that out as well. So it's a, like so many families, it's a, there's a mixture, right? And that's what makes it interesting. Yeah. I would have seen others for whom the shadow of a parent was, was deadening and was impossible to escape. The metaphor I like to use with my dad is he had such a bright light shone on him where he attracted such a bright light, he was in the spotlight a lot, but he widened that spotlight to allow so many others in, including myself. But that narrow sliver where if you got stuck there, it was a, it was very, very dark, right? Like you were, you were overwhelmed by how, uh, not how big a shadow he cast, but how deep it could be. And you really had to work at getting out of that. We had a couple of experiences that allowed me to sort of see who I was outside of him. And for him to see who I was uh, beyond just being Jim Hayhurst Jr. Jim's description of his father casting a deep shadow was really personal, but also not unique. The shadow effect is something that many people who grew up in prominent or highly accomplished families experience. And so I really appreciated him sharing that perspective. But in Jim's case, of course, he has found his own place of significance in both the business world and the nonprofit sector. 
and he's worked with a lot of very successful entrepreneurs. And so I wanted him to explain how he understands the role of the entrepreneur in giving, this concept of philanthropeneurism, and how it's changing the face of philanthropy. Increasingly, I am attracted to, and they are attracted to me, these, these entrepreneurs who, you know, more and more of them are having bigger, quicker exits. Um, and so the landscape of philanthropy in Canada, certainly in the U.S., has become less about uh, generational wealth. Um, it's been more the tech and other entrepreneurs who have made significant capital quickly and have an embedded sense of, of generosity and wanting to not just give back, but have an impact. And so I think the, the key difference I'm seeing is that an entrepreneur who has a significant exit, um, you know, they're never an overnight success. Let's say it was a 10 year, let's say it was a 20 year thing. They still have that itch to scratch, which is rolling up their sleeves and getting their hands dirty. And they, they do that in a variety of ways. The first is they probably lean more towards angel investing and, and venture investing than others would. So their their kind of investment portfolio is tilted towards hands-on stuff. But on the philanthropic side, there, you know, many of them are finding that they're they're not satisfied with the giving experience, being part of a a big organization. Often they'll get invited to sit on the board of a hospital because they, you know, that's the very first thing. It's the, it's the simplest thing, right? And or their university is the but, you know, my dad experienced that, too. He sat on a couple of big boards after he exited and he's like, I don't want to be with these people. They're not, they're not my people. They're, you know, um, they're senior vice presidents of banks that were sort of, you know, assigned to be on this board. And so you certainly see entrepreneurs looking for opportunities to give back in a different way, a bit more hands on. Um, good news is there are more and more opportunities like that. Uh, there are a multitude of nonprofits and charities that need that kind of expertise, need people to roll up their sleeves, need people with capital to come in and leverage their networks and raise more money. And they're doing really interesting things. They are solving for some of the biggest problems in the world, which every entrepreneur believed that they were doing when they created their company, right? Exactly. And so there's a kindredness there with the nonprofit founders. And they really look, the best entrepreneurs look at nonprofit founders as entrepreneurs themselves. But there's a, there's a downside to it as well that if if you really don't take the time as an entrepreneur post exit to figure out where and how your your skills and your values and your resources can be used then sometimes you can mess things up and i've seen it again and again where many entrepreneurs believe that the best way for them to make a difference is to start another charity and partially that's born out of potentially frustration with other charities that they don't feel are doing what they should be doing or don't run the way that they want them to. And I, and I totally get that. But, you know, sometimes it's just that they don't really have the ability to, to, to sit back and kind of scan the, the, the ecosystem for the opportunities. Now, I know there's, there's great irony in me saying that because my dad was one of those entrepreneurs that started a charity. Um, <laughs> uh, but you did scan the environment. You did a lot of research about what else was out there yeah. and what was needed. Exactly. And I think you're right. I mean, the instinct is to, well, I started this company. I know how to do this. Oh, I'll start my own foundation to uh, try to fix the problem I'm concerned about. Exactly. You know, one of the challenges in the nonprofit sector versus any other environment that you're going into if you're looking for an investment thesis is that there's not a lot of data available. There's not a lot of people paying attention to it. So any idea seems like a good idea because you really don't see all of the ideas. But the second problem is that the nonprofit sector and nonprofit leaders, and I was one of them, is that we will bend over backwards for someone with money. 
and there is a there's an assignment of of success to someone who has made money that permeates through other facets, right? So the, the I think there was a there's a phrase that I learned years ago, and it's called a signal skill, right? And so there are signal skills within people. Um, if you're a good communicator, you must be intelligent. Um, you know, it even goes to physical traits, like they used to say, if you were tall, you know, you were confident. But if you have money, uh, you must be smart. And so, you know, nonprofit leaders have a tough time saying no to smart people with money or people with money that might be smart. But also there's a power dynamic at play. And entrepreneurs especially, their skill is is based on what their technical knowledge might have been starting their company. But more than anything, it was tenacity and it was powers of persuasion. Sheer force of will, right? Sheer force of will. And I've seen it again and again where successful people have joined boards, uh, started their own nonprofits, or they have a thesis within their charitable foundation. And through sheer force of will, they believe something to be true, which may in fact be true or it may, may become true through that force of will. And it's remarkable when you see it really succeed. And there are great examples of this across Canada of people who have taken ideas and, and run with them. The Learning Partnership in Toronto would be a great example of it. Uh, Power to Be out here in, in Victoria would be another. You know, Trails is a great example too. It, it shouldn't have worked uh, in many ways. But, but the downside of it is, you know, it can leave a bit of a trail of carnage of charities that get started or they become the flavor of the day for a group and then they move on. And, and it's a challenge that I see. But what I'm most excited by is this, this new generation of philanthropists who are, um, they may not even be entrepreneurs, but they could be next generation wealth, but they simply have a different way of looking at what that money means. And they are excited to activate that capital in, in ways that their parents and grandparents probably didn't. It's going to be less about the big dollar donations with plaques and naming opportunities to universities and hospitals. It's going to be more about systemic and fundamental changes within communities, justice, climate, whatever it is. And, you know, they're not as interested in the money for money's sake. They're, they're much more interested in money for impact sake, which is really cool. So sticking with that entrepreneur example, let's just say for a moment, someone has sold their business for a big number. What advice would you have for them? What's the starting point to help them chart a path to meaningful philanthropy? Because I know you talk to a lot of these people. Yeah. So I would, I would say even before that, um, I'm a huge proponent of, of entrepreneurs at the earliest stages of their companies to figure out what their philanthropy would look like. So I just, I, Unfortunately, I find that uh, once the money's there, it's really hard to figure it out without a lot of competing interests, let's just say. So my recommendation is actually, Kelly, not to think about philanthropy once you've made the money. It's actually to think about philanthropy before you've made the money and start exercising that muscle so you don't pull a muscle when you have the money. And it's a big lift. That's my advice. I love that. So yeah, establish that practice of giving early on. And, and it's not going to be millions in the early days. But it's something. Yeah. The other thing, too, is there are great opportunities and structures for, for doing that. So um, my recommendation to companies that I work with or invest in or invite other investors into lately has been set aside a small percentage of your company early on on the founder's cap table or after that first round, whatever, as early as you can so that you're not, quote unquote, taking money from other investors. But as early as you can, set it aside for charity. But even philosophically, it's that idea that. As a company, I believe that your culture is 
is buttressed by having a, a culture of giving. And it doesn't have to be giving away money. It could be just, it could be volunteering. It could be understanding your social impact early on. Um, because again, I've seen, um, I've, I've got friends who have had significant exits who uh, don't know what to do with all of this money. They don't know what to buy, who they are. Uh, they don't know what it means to have that amount of capital. Um, and they certainly don't think about giving money away strategically. And there aren't that many people coming to them and saying, hi, I'd like to help you with this. You've got lots of others, other advisors who are saying, here's how we'll, you know, protect, maintain, and grow your, your capital. Invest it. Yeah. But not so much about protecting, maintaining, or, or identifying and growing the meaning of the money through philanthropy. Um, and so that's what I get interested in. Do you think they would be open to those types of conversations if someone did approach them? I think that they are much more open to those kinds of conversations if the person who approaches them is someone who's done it. And so one of the challenges that I think we see in the philanthropic sector is there aren't a lot of great examples of people talking about what they did, how it worked, what was good, what was bad. Like, you know, this podcast is great because you have people talking about their experiences of making mistakes. You know, if my dad was here, he would talk at length <laughs> about um, how hard it was for him to figure out what to do with all of this money. Uh, both from an investment and a philanthropic, and so he took that time. And so I, I think, you know, his his inspiration to people like our friend Greg Clark, right, who is now the ch the chair of of our charity of Trails, you know, and the, one of the reasons that Greg is chair of, of Trails is because he was an early board member. He was one of my first best and toughest board members at Trails, and he saw firsthand how my father and a few others around the board table and a few others of our of our bigger donors but how they were creating meaning through their philanthropy. So having examples is much more helpful than having advisors. Let me just put it that way. Mm -hmm. um, you got to kind of go to school with those who've been there. I love what you're saying. And you know, I'm, I'm on board with that. I still say it's hard to figure out your own focus because I've heard statistics around this. I do think one of the reasons people who are inclined to give don't give more is because they don't necessarily know where to give and what their focus is be. We all get asked for money. And in our case, we pretty much give to everyone who asks, even if it's a smaller sum, but you can end up, that's some adds up and you're nowhere near your focus. Yeah. I mean, being reactive is probably the worst way to do anything. So, you know, I have a piece of very practical advice for, for folks, which I use in a very small way in our family which is, you know, when you, when someone comes to our door and says, hi, I'm here on behalf of the CNIB and we're, or, you know, we're raising money for dog shelters or whatever it is. Um, in the past, you know, my wife and then my kids, when they would answer the door, they'd be like, yes, we'd love to give $20. And I, it wasn't, it wasn't that $20 was the biggest deal. It was more like I, I didn't want us, I wanted us to, to know why we were giving. And so what I started saying was, thanks very much. I, I started a charity. That's where our Family philanthropy really focuses on, and I have two other organizations that I am on the boards of. And I would just say that. And so it it was it was true, but it also just stopped the conversation and allowed me to sort of have the space to to think about you know how we would be giving. And I think that I would encourage anyone to. I think that you know they, people get this advice when they when they come into a lot of money. I think people will be like, um, I think advisors sometimes say, 
go and spend $100,000, whatever the number is. Like, go, go, go get that out of your system. If you've had a huge exit, go, go buy the whatever. Like, just do, do your thing and then, and then pause, you know, whatever. Get that out of your system. It's a little bit this way, which is find one thing to commit to so that you can say no to other things. That's the best thing that I, as a, as a nonprofit leader, as a fundraiser, the best version of no that I hear is no because. So that's the first thing is like choose one thing to kind of give yourself some space. Right. And then the second would be to go and immerse yourself as much as you can in the experience, not of giving, but of actually seeing the work being done. And there are ways to do that. But going and meeting with the organizations is not something that everybody can do or everybody is inclined to do or wants to do. But talking to those in your network who seem to have had a really meaningful, charitable and philanthropic experience and say, well, tell me. I'm not, I don't have to be interested in your thing, but tell me how. It's much more important the how of deciding than, than the what you end up deciding. I think that's great advice. I'm going to use that. Thank you. <laughs> Switching gears again a little bit. So I know that you're out talking to a lot of large and emerging donors across the country. And you're asking them about, you know, what are your hopes and fears and aspirations and challenges around philanthropy? I'd love to be a fly on the wall. What are you hearing? Mostly what we're hearing is um, this shift from reactive to uh, more strategic, um, where they are looking to, you know, be, be activating their philanthropy in a, you know, in a way that sort of reflects kind of the 21st century, which is a bit more thoughtful, a bit more urgent, um, but they don't really know where to do that. So they're seeking that advice. But the biggest part of that is they they like to do it together. There's a bit more communal. You know, too often people think that they're the only ones funding a particular concept or a particular area or focus. And so part of the work that we do at Power to Give and others do is to make sure that we're connecting people with others who are interested in the area that they're funding. And so I, we're finding that people like to do the collaborative, the partnership funding, the co-funding more than maybe in the past. They're, certainly the best donors are doing that where they don't have to own it, so to speak. Um, I think there also is still a, a really challenging uh, misunderstanding of what impact means and how you measure the effectiveness of charities. There is a shorthand for many philanthropists, which is born out of uh, a lack of knowledge that that the effectiveness of a charity has to do with its overhead expense ratio. In other words, the best charities are the ones that spend the most on programs and the least on fundraising or marketing or quote unquote overhead salaries and offices and stuff. And and that is a misconception and it's a very dangerous one that that many of us in the sector are really trying to to um, disabuse from people to say actually if you look at the best charities measured by what their impact is, it has very little correlation to how much they spend on overhead. But that's very confusing for philanthropists because they've been told one thing for a long time, which is, you know, more money into programs means more impact. So there, you know, there's definitely a, a group of philanthropists who are doing far more unrestricted giving, which is exciting to see. So, um, you know, seeing more people interested in understanding the value of multi-year gifts. Uh, and and that's great to see. So unrestricted multi-year giving, collaborative partnerships with other nonprofits and other funders, seeing a lot of that. 
But probably the biggest challenge that people are seeing is the amount of of, of choice out there. You know, there's 87,000 or something you know, charities in Canada, and it's too many. People might be surprised for me to, to hear me say that, but it's far too many. I have a, a friend who's in the nonprofit data analytics space, just a brilliant guy named Michael Lechner. And Michael is very, he's very clear. He said, listen, I am a relentless optimist about the possibilities of change, but I am a huge skeptic when it comes to the ability for charities to actually affect change at scale with the number that we have doing it. It's just too fragmented. There's far too many charities doing similar things or not doing them well enough by any measure. And I think that that really undermines the confidence of donors. Um, and so, you know, having more transparency on on results, on impact and data is great, but putting it in a way that people understand it, especially from the business world, is going to be super helpful. And there are things like this new film, this new documentary that's just come out this fall, Uncharitable, which is based on Dan Pilata's work, which really talks in tangible business language about how and why charities can have impact and what we need to do as donors to liberate them from uh, all of these weird constraints that we put on them. Like, oh, you can't pay people well in charities. You can't spend money on marketing, um, can't take risk, can't have a profit motive, uh, can't take a long time to reach results. All of these things sort of add up to hamstring charities and actually being effective. And more and more philanthropists are starting to get it that, oh, you, you know, they could be looking at charities the same way they look at their other investments and say, yeah, invest in, in the future. Take your time, make some big bets. Uncharitable is a great film and it will probably change how you think about investing in charities. So I highly recommend people see it. And one of the factors that makes Jim so credible and relatable on the subject of philanthropinerism is that he has done it. Listen to his story of how he and his father founded Trails Youth Initiatives. Trails was born out of my dad's restlessness. He, he had sold the agencies in the mid 80s. Uh, he was 46, um, trying to figure out who he was. Uh, and like many people, like many entrepreneurs, he began to make some venture investments and helped companies get started and supported entrepreneurs. He, he also joined a couple of boards. Specifically, he joined as chairman of Outward Bound Canada, Outward Bound being this great outdoor education program that works on leadership through adventure. But a couple of years later, he, he had seen some of the limitations of programs like Outward Bound and some of the, the camps that were running for at-risk youth in Toronto. And he was just very curious about whether there was a better way. He was just a you know, very, um, <laughs> he, he had ADD for sure. And he, and he couldn't sit still when he got an entrepreneur. Yeah, exactly. So um, he had gone to visit, uh, he had been invited to go and visit an, an amazing program in, in Harlem in New York called the Children's Storefront School run by an amazing guy named Neto Gorman. And he was really inspired by the work that they were doing with, uh, with inner city kids there. Came back, said, I don't want to be a part of helping kids in New York City. We've got enough problems here. Let's try to figure out what's the Canadian model for the children's storefront school. I had been working for an adventure travel company. Uh, I was uh, exhausted from going around the world and, and leading these trips. And so he and I were talking at the farm one time and he said, you know, I, I really think this this idea has some legs, but I need someone to run with it. And you know, long story short, he basically uh, tapped me. I don't think he paid me. <laughs> <laughs> now thinking back to it, I think for the first few months, he said, just go do some research on what are the best programs out there. Came back with a thesis that was fortified by his 
brilliant thinking about people and how they work together and and how leadership can be elevated. And and we came up with this idea for trails, which was essentially to take all of the best things about the camp experience, about experiential education, and to blow it up across multi-year programming, four seasons programming, and to really hone in on a very particular set of kids. And so Trails Youth Initiatives became, in 1992, the first program of its kind, and to this day, one of the only programs that works with a small group of at-risk youth from the toughest neighborhoods of Toronto. And it's now over 30 years old. Uh, it's had some remarkable results. And that was what, you know, that became kind of beyond his family, that became my dad's greatest legacy, certainly beyond the businesses that he started. Uh, and it was the thing that, that he and I are most proud of creating together. Having had the opportunity to become involved with Trails, I am so impressed by what the Hayhurst family set in course. And the numbers speak for themselves. More than 500 inner city kids are alumni of its program. In terms of data points, 99% have graduated high school and 72% go on to post-secondary education with the help of Trails bursary and mentorship programs. It is a true entrepreneurial success story. I wanted to keep talking about the modern approach to philanthropy, but we were out of time and I wanted to save a few minutes for that portion of the show where I asked my guests rapid fire questions about their view of money. Question I always like to ask people, spending, investing, or giving money away, which is the most challenging for you? The most challenging for me is investing because I have a perspective that I like to see money being active in far too much of my investing has actually been active investing. I mean, I've put most of you know most of my capital into startups and companies that I've joined or advised, and and it's that's the problem. It's I know it's not the the most um, <laughs> it's not the greatest financial strategy, but it gives me incredible meaning. Um, so I'm having I'm having a tough time recalibrating that at this age and stage of my life, where I'm not going to be doing startups and where all of my capital is going into a startup. And so, what do I do with it? Uh, I really like to have my hands on things, and that doesn't always work out. <laughs> so it's my toughest one. But I see spending as a version of investing as well. I uh, I want to do a podcast on that about investing in private equity and and venture. And I think that you're just touching on some of the challenges that I see. Um, very quickly, you tell me one line item where you underspend, and two where you think you you splurge. For a long time, we underspent on our house because we splurged on our kids' education and travel experiences. We just recently finished a reno, and it's wonderful, and we love having everybody here, and the kids are excited. But for a long time, the, the home front was the underinvested. But we we really invested in and splurged on. I wouldn't call it a splurge, but we really we spent money on our kids' education and on their travel experiences, which often came with that education. Our daughter's in Europe right now. Uh, Interestingly, she's paid for the entire trip, and I think she's done that because she's realized the value of travel. We have not committed a cent to that trip, Amazing. but her other trips in the past growing up were, I think, pretty seminal in creating that desire to explore the world. So, Jim, tell me, who is a role model for you in terms of how they handle tremendous wealth? I have two answers. Um, one is uh, one of my best friends in Toronto, and I won't name him, but he'll know who he is if he listens to this, who has taken a page from my, from my dad's book where he has used his wealth to create spaces where, as he says, his kids feel welcome 
and and most importantly, his his kids' friends feel welcome. And so he is invested in creating the spaces, the the homes, the experiences for his kids to come to. And that has been hugely important. And he's also been very, very focused and strategic with his philanthropy. But the other is, and this is, you know, someone who just recently passed away, who I didn't know, but I feel like I knew, was Chuck Feeney. Uh, Chuck Feeney was one of the founders of the Duty Free Shops. But more importantly, he was he was the, the guy who created the Atlantic Philanthropies and committed to giving away all of his money in his lifetime. And he did that. He gave, he gave away $8 billion. His understanding, before it became a effective altruism or whatever the phrase is these days, his understanding that, you know, in some ways it wasn't his money and that it could have far more impact in the market of ideas and and uh, and causes than sitting in his bank account. You know, drove an old car, lived in a modest house and gave away $8 billion. Even at a small scale, I'd, I'd, be, I'd be inspired by that. I want to thank Jim Hayhurst for being my guest today and for the truly groundbreaking work he's doing to help people think about philanthropy in a new way and make it meaningful. The movie he talked about is Uncharitable, and I really encourage you to go out and see it. Thank you for listening. I am so grateful that this podcast is catching on and I hope you'll continue to share it with other people who enjoy rich conversations about wealth and also leave us a rating or review. It helps us to get found by more people. Serious Coin is provided for your general interest only and nothing we discuss should be taken as investment, tax, legal or other professional advice. Always talk to a licensed professional before you make any financial decisions.